You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Awesome. My name's Dusty. I'm one of the pastors here at the Brook, and I have been here for just under six weeks now, and just having a blast being here. I have got a chance to meet many of you. Uh, some of you I have not yet. I look forward to that. Uh, but I just want to say uh, sincerely thank you so much for uh, quickly making me feel part of the Brook family here. Um, it truly is great to be here. And speaking of family, I've been uh, super blessed with a lot of support as well and a lot of support here today. I've got uh, family here and friends here and, and even one of my uh, former students here as well. So very, very supported. So uh, my parents have joined us here today too. And how many of you are parents in the room? Parents, a lot of you. I saw a lot of the beach campers back. Awesome. So glad to have you guys. So uh, if you're a parent, you probably may be similar to uh, my parents in a way. Uh, my parents raised me uh, to, in the church. They raised me to love the Lord. I'm so thankful for that. But like so many parents, they also wanted to do everything they could to keep me safe. And uh, I grew up in the 90s. And so many of you, if you were a parent in, uh, in the 90s or a child in the 90s, there wasn't 8,000 airbags. There wasn't a front airbag, side airbag, side airbag, like airbag below you, above you, everywhere. Um, there was only a couple. And so if I was ever riding in the front seat with my mom or my dad, it didn't matter. Uh, if they began to hit the brake, boom, right arm came out across my chest. Anybody else been there? If you're, maybe you're a parent, you've done that. You're, you're a child and that happened like it's, I mean, as soon as the brake hit, boom, just like reactionary. Uh, and it was, that was their way of, I guess, trying to protect me or trying to protect my brother from our foreheads hitting the front dash. And, uh, and so, you know, growing up, it was, like I said, it was a reactionary thing for them, and I, uh, my brother is a little bit taller than me, so there may be times where just out of reaction, my dad threw that arm out, and it may not always come across my chest. Uh, sometimes, and, and I, I'm going to go that it was an accident, maybe it, maybe it wasn't, uh, but sometimes he'd hit the brake, that arm would come out, and it was like a karate chop across the neck. Um, and so... I'm not sure which would have been worse, the hitting my forehead on the dash or the karate chop across the neck, but nonetheless, it was all uh, meant to protect me. It was all meant to protect my brother, and I start with that this morning because we're going to be continuing in the book of 1 John together, and in the book of 1 John, uh, the author John gives us a number of reasons for why he penned this letter. He's writing to believers in the church of Asia Minor, in the churches throughout Asia Minor, and as he writes this letter, one of his big reasons for writing it is he is almost like a father, father figure to these believers. They are, uh, they are younger than him. He has walked with Jesus, and he's writing to them as a father wanting to protect the flock. He is wanting to protect his sons and daughters in the faith. And if you've been here for a few weeks since we started this study, if you think back to the first week, Brian really gave us some context in, uh, to this letter, what's going on. And one of the things that was happening during this time was there was a lot of false teaching. There was a lot of false doctrine that had entered into these churches. And so, again, as, as a fatherly figure who loved these believers, he, he being John, wanted to reach out and wanted to remind them 
uh, of what the truth is, and he wanted to protect them from being deceived. So today we are going to continue where Brian left off. Uh, last week we'll be in 1 John 2. Uh, we're going to be in verses 15 through 27. Now, my favorite way of teaching, my favorite style is to walk verse by verse through a passage. But if we were to walk verse by verse through this passage and break down every nuance of it, we'd probably be here till, I don't know, two or later this afternoon. And I'm pretty sure I would be really hungry. You would be hungry. Maybe some of you even hangry in here. So uh, to avoid that, we are, we're going to read through the whole passage. But then we're going to kind of narrow our wedge to a few verses and really uh, see what the Lord's putting on our hearts. So join me in reading this passage again. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, as you can see in verse 26 there, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So remember, as a fatherly figure to his brothers and sisters in Christ, he's reminding them, I'm, I'm writing this for your good, for your protection, because of what is going on with them. Now, again, this being a longer uh, passage, we're really going to kind of narrow our wedge in verses 15 through 17. So let's actually go back to verse 15 again and look at it. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if we're going to properly understand this verse, this this is a command from John. It says, Do not love the world. There's really two words that I feel like in this verse we really need to understand what John means, where he's coming from how he defines a couple of words so we know really what he's saying. Uh, The first word is the word love, and the second word is the word world. Now, if you were here last week, you began uh, to hear Brian break down the way that the Greek uses the word love, or the meanings for for love in the Greek. Uh, One of the ways is uh, an eros love, which is an erotic or romantic love. 
Another way is phileo, which is a brotherly love. And then the third way, and Brian touched on this last week, is agape. And that's actually the sense in which John is using it here. He's using the verb form of the Greek word agape. And the essence of this type of love is it's a desire for something and a commitment to something. Once again, that's a desire for something and a commitment to something. Now, again, the second word being world. World is used throughout the scriptures in a couple different ways. Uh, In fact, the same author, John, in his gospel, in probably the most popular verse in all of scripture, John 3.16, says, For God so loved the world. Now, when he references the world there, he is referring to the people of the world, not the way in which he's using it here in, in 1 John chapter 2. Then, also in Scripture, we see the word world used a number of times to refer to planet Earth, to refer to where we reside. Again, not how he's using it here. In this sense, when John uses the word world, he is actually referring to the evil system, the principles and the practices of this world. He is talking about where the world that Satan oversees. And in fact, in his gospel in John 14, verse 30, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of the world. So if we're going to, f- to define the word world here, he's saying that it's everything that opposes Christ and his work on earth. So everything that opposes Christ and his work on earth. So now that we have a definition for love and world, so to put into layman's terms, what is John saying then? He is commanding this group of believers, saying, stop loving the world. He's saying, stop loving what opposes Christ. Very, very clearly, again, as a fatherly figure to the flock. Then in the second half of the verse, he goes on to say that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This means that love for the world and love for the Father, they're in direct opposition to one another. They are pitted against each other. It is not a little bit of the world, a little bit of God. No, they are opposed. And this is actually a theme throughout the New Testament. We see this multiple times. I'll just give you a couple of examples. One comes from Romans chapter 13, verse 14. It says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So in other words, do not make any provision to gratify the desires of the flesh. And then Matthew 6, verse 24, says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then finally, James chapter 4, verse 4, and this one, James lays it on here. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James so clearly states, to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And now, I want to be very clear real quick here. When James refers to the world here too, he's not saying, hey, don't be friends with the people of the world. Don't invest your life in the people of the world. That's not what James means here. He is saying when he's talking about friendship with the world, he's talking about living, like taking in the world system, being friends with it, wanting everything that the world has to offer. So he paints a very stark contrast that friendship with the world means that you're an enemy of God. 
And if I'm honest with you guys in here, I'm going to be honest a lot this morning. If I'm honest with you, I don't always treat friendship with the world as though it is an enemy of God. In fact, sometimes if, if this is a, a love for God and, and over here is a love for the world, I kind of want to tiptoe up to the line and I kind of want to lean over and, and just see what the world has to offer. But the truth of the matter is, is, is Satan and his world system would love to lure our heart's affections away. Would love to take our focus off of love for the Father. To, to attract us with something shiny from the world. See, every day there's a battle going on for our heart's affections. But I'm not sure that I wake up every morning knowing I'm in a battle. Or acknowledging I'm in a battle. I think sometimes I wake up in the morning... Rather than thinking I'm in a battle, I'm just going skipping along when it's raging all around me. This kind of makes me think of a, a story that my grandfather told me a couple years ago. So my grandfather is 92 years old, and a couple years ago I decided that I wanted to go spend some time with him one day and just learn a little bit more about his early years, uh, learn a little bit more about him serving in World War II. Uh, so he actually enlisted in World War II at the age of 17, his father had to sign off for him to, to go into the Navy. And so we're talking about the war, and I'm just kind of hearing his perspective on it. And he told me, he said, Dusty, yeah, we, we would get word that uh, a bomb had been dropped heading toward our ship. To which I got wide-eyed and, and looked at him and said, well, how did you respond? What was your reaction? I, said, I looked at him and said, were you scared? He said, no, I mean, we, we weren't scared. And then I looked at him and said, how were you not scared? He said, well, we were, we were confident. He said, we were confident that whatever came our way, we would shoot down. He, he said, no, we, we knew we had it. And, I mean, I was dumbfounded because I would be freaking out. They just dropped, dropped a bomb. And maybe it was because they were so confident. Maybe it was because they were so gifted and skilled at their craft that they knew they could do it but I have to think maybe just a little bit of it was he was 17 years old and maybe he didn't quite realize the gravity of what was going on around him that he was in the middle of a war and if they didn't shoot this down this may mean the end of him and that's a lot of times how I treat the things of this world is I don't realize the gravity of what's going on around me I don't realize this battle. And as we continue into verse 16, John begins to lay out some of the weapons that Satan and the world system are using in this battle. He begins to lay out some of the things that are in direct opposition to the things of the Lord. So check out verse 16 with me. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So John gives us three phrases to describe the world system. These, these three phrases, they're not all-encompassing of, of everything, uh, all the things of the world, uh, but they are three weapons, again, that are used to seduce us, that are used to take us away from what is truth. And I don't know about you, even as I read desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life, I mean, it hits me between the eyes because I, I know that these are temptations for me as well. 
So when he says desires of the flesh, you could interchange the word desires with cravings, lust, passion. And this, uh, this desire is any desire that's contrary to the will of God. So anything that goes against the things of the Lord are desires of the flesh. This could manifest itself in a number of ways. It could be a, a lust for money. This could be a lust for status. This could even just be a lust for comfort, a passion or desire for to have comfort. And the thing about it is these desires of the flesh are in direct opposition to the desires of the Spirit of God that lives inside of us. And Scripture talks about this all throughout the Word of God, but specifically in Galatians chapter 5, Paul puts it so clearly in verses 16 and 17. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Again, so clearly exposing this opposition. There is a battle that is even going on within us every day. Do I, do we acknowledge it? It's a battle between the flesh and it's a battle between the Spirit of God and us. Now, as we move to the, to the second weapon there, the desires of the eyes. Most people, they hear desires of the eyes or lust of the eyes, and they immediately think, okay, this is, this is pertaining to a sexual lust. Well, that would be a part of it, but that's not all of it. Uh, essentially, a lust of the eyes is what I see I want. It could be, man, we have to live in this neighborhood. I've got to do whatever it takes to live in this neighborhood. So the career, the, the money, everything gets exalted above pursuing the Lord because what matters most is being in that neighborhood. So it, again, this can manifest itself a number of ways. And again, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, as I was studying and preparing for this, I was hit between the eyes a number of times. I was convicted of, of ways that, that I'm attracted to these things, of ways that I'm triggers of temptations inside of me. But the third one, the third weapon, may be the most sneaky, I think, of the three. It's the pride of life. And I'm willing to bet that everyone in here, at some point or another, has, has dealt with pride. And if you're thinking, no, I never have, then you're probably dealing with it right now. But we know that Pride is seeking to exalt ourselves above God, or put ourselves over God. And again, it's, it's sneaky. It creeps up in so many different areas of our life if we're not careful. Pride can creep up in our professions. You can reach a certain level where you believe, man, I am a subject matter expert in this. But nobody can tell me anything that I don't know already. I'm not listening to him. Or maybe you reach a point in your career where you are VP or president, and you're like, these people over here, they're peons. They, they answer to me. I know everything. Now, you may think that's an exaggeration, but it happens. Pride can even uh, sneak up in our family life. We think, man, my kids have to go to this school, or look what our family does for vacations. Look what groups they're a part of. Look what you know, trips we take, all these things, pride can well up in us in that way. Pride can even well up in our own faith. 
which this is a sneaky one. You could be sitting in here or you could be sitting in your missional community group and the thought comes over you. You don't even know where it comes from, but the thought comes over you and goes, man, I'm, I'm more doctrinally sound than this person teaching. I know way more theology than them. And suddenly you think, man, I, I have nothing to learn from them. They can teach me nothing because I've reached this level of faith. And if I am going to be completely transparent with you, pride even kept, uh, crept up in me as I prepared for this message. And I don't like telling you this, but as I was preparing for this message, uh, my, my goal was that the Word of God would speak and He would be glorified. But as I began to study and get into it, I felt this, this pride rise in me of going, man, I, I've got to prove myself. I'm the new pastor on staff. I've got to prove that I was, I was worth hiring. Man, Chip's a great teacher. Brian's a great teacher. Reed's a great teacher. I've got to prove that, that I can hold my own. Maybe I should use some extra Greek words. Maybe I should get a whiteboard up here and like break down some things and, and show that I'm like a biblical scholar. Not the truth. Um, but So this began to well up in me. And I, and I was talking to my friend Matt. He was here in the last service. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, I, I went to Matt. I said, hey, please pray for me. I said, I'm preparing for this sermon, and I, I badly want to do a good job of, of uh, expositing the scriptures, and I want God to be glorified. But right now, all I keep thinking about is I've got to prove my worth here. I've got to prove that I belong. And, uh, and Matt uh, was so diligent to pray for me, and, and thankfully God began to, to crush those, uh, those things in my life, and, and hopefully that it comes across uh, the desire for him to be exalted. But, again, pride can be so sneaky. And if you're listening to these three weapons, you think, man, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, I deal with these. I'm here to tell you you're not alone. I told you that I deal with them too, but we actually see in the scriptures that our Savior was even tempted by these same desires. Uh, and I'd love to look at them with you. They come from Luke chapter 4. So Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. So Luke 4, 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So setting the scene there, uh, Jesus is in the desert. He is there for 40 days. He has eaten nothing. He's being tempted by the devil. Okay, so first thing that Satan throws at him comes in verse 3. He says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. That's a low blow. Low blow, man. Jesus is, is hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. And Satan says, if you are who you say you are, just make this stone bread. Just fill your belly. I know you're hungry. And Jesus easily could have. But there's that, that lust of the flesh. Oh, my belly is, is crying out, wanting food. Then Satan throws another one at him in verse 5. He says in verse 5, it says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all the authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will, be all, it will all be yours. So Satan takes him up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says, Jesus, the power, the prestige, the wealth, it's all yours. 
Everything you see, everything your eyes can see, it's yours. Just worship me. Man, the, the lust of the eyes. Everything he saw could be his. And then the third weapon that Satan throws at him comes in verse 9. It says, And he took, him, uh, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the third time, Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, If you are who you say you are, Jesus, just throw yourself down. Your angels, they won't let you be harmed. They'll catch you. And Jesus could have been like, oh yeah, boom. And fallen back. And, and come back up and be like, that's right, Satan, I am who I said I am. You know that temptation of pride was probably welling up. But... In just a moment, I will show you that Jesus did not respond that way. Luckily, he didn't respond like I would respond. And we're going to come back to uh, Luke 4 in a minute, so definitely hold your place there. But let's continue on in 1 John. Take a look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So besides the fact that the things of this world are directly opposed to the things of God. Love for the world is opposed to the love for God. John gives us a second reason why putting our stock in the things of the world is futile. He says it's passing away. The things of this world are temporary. They are dying. He says, guys, they're not eternal. The things of this world don't last. Uh, let me give you this example. Let's say you decide to rent a house. I rented a house with a, a close friend of mine for about four years. Let's say you decide to rent a house, and you, you find a, a place in a location you like, and then you begin to take your life savings, and you go to remodel that house. You take the, your life savings, and you gut the kitchen, and you completely renovate the kitchen, turn it into your dream kitchen. Then you renovate all the bathrooms and update them. You even throw a new roof on the house. You put your life savings into making this house exactly what you were hoping for, exactly what you've dreamed of. But if you've ever rented a house here, you know you don't own that house. It's not yours. Your life savings that you put into it, you, you're not getting that investment back. You have literally just poured your life savings into something that will not last. That's what happens when we put our stock in the things of this world, is we are putting everything that we have our life's focus into things that are temporary. But John does give us hope. In the second half of the verse, of verse 17, he says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he says, there is, there's something dying, there's something passing away, but there is also something eternal. You can put your hope in something eternal. So the things of God, the, the will of God will last forever. And those who live out the will of God will abide forever, it says. Now the word abide is used in this letter over 15 times. It's not a very long letter. So anytime we see a word used again and again, we need to take note of it in the scriptures. We need to understand, okay, what is John saying? What does he mean by this word? So when John is saying abide, uh, the synonyms for that would be to remain or to dwell. 
So practically then, how do we remain in the will of God? Luckily, John doesn't leave us hanging. He begins to expose how we remain in the will of God, how we abide in the will of God. And he goes into that beginning in verse 21. So chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then in verse 24, he says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So you saw abide again there several more times. He says, What you heard from the beginning... Again, John as a fatherly figure, John uh, looking to his sons and daughters in the faith says, what you heard from the beginning, what you've known, what we taught you, that's the gospel, that's the truth. Abide in that. So So how do we know the will of God? How can we abide in his will? By knowing this, by knowing what is truth. See, I don't know about you, but I need the word of God. I need this truth to wash over me on a daily basis. Because the lies of this world begin to become so pervasive in my life. They begin to become so pervasive in my mind. I've got to be in this so that I can assault the lies of this world. So when a lie creeps in, I can go, no, 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 here's truth. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Go back to, ver- or to Luke chapter 4. I want to show you Jesus' responses to Satan's temptations for the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So again, in verse 3, we saw that Satan said, just turn this stone into bread. Just feed your belly. Well, in verse 4, we see his response. It says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus responds, it is written. He is quoting scripture to Satan. Satan is is throwing out a lie. Jesus assaults it with truth. Then, in verse 5, we saw where he took him up uh, and showed him the kingdoms of the world. says, everything you can see, you can have. Again, the lust or the desires of the eyes. And Jesus' rebuttal comes in verse 8. Again, he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So again, he says, it is written. He takes the word and he assaults the lies. Finally, we saw the third temptation, the pride of life. He says, if you are who you say you are, just throw yourself down from here. Your angels will catch you. And Jesus responds to him in verse 12. He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now when Jesus says, it is said, again, for the third time, he is quoting the scriptures. So if Jesus used the truth to defend himself, to assault the lies, then I believe that that's how I, that's how we should defend ourselves. We must be in this. We must know this to assault the lies. Now, I'm not up here today to beat you over the head with this. I'm not up here probably telling you anything that you haven't heard before. I'm sure you've been in a myriad of services that talk about getting in the Word. But I'm up here today as one of your pastors, as somebody who loves this congregation, and who's preaching to myself, by the way, too, pleading with you that we have to be in this truth. 
Because when we're in this truth, we can know what is truth against the lies. And when we begin to get in this, not only can we assault the lies, when we open up the scriptures, we see God. When we open up the scriptures, we get to know who he truly is. And I, I'm pleading with us to be students of this word. I'm pleading with us for, for us to take this into our hearts, for this to be on our minds, for this to be on the tip of our tongues, that we are ready not only to wield it, to assault the lies, but that we are ready to encourage our brothers and sisters who may be uh, le- believing these lies, that we are ready to preach truth to ourselves when we do fall on our faces. Because I don't know about you, like when I fall on my face, I've got to come back to this because I need to know what is truth, because what's filling my head is lies. I also have to be in this, guys, because so often, at least for me, the things of this world begin to look shiny. They begin to look attractive to me. Wealth, status, comfort, all these things. They can look real shiny to me. And I'm not, I'm not hating on these different things, but they, if we're not careful, they can be elevated above the pursuit, above a love for the Lord. And if we're not careful, these things to begin to become shiny. And I've been lured away before. I've chased the things that are attractive. I actually got lured in a little bit different sense uh, one time, but maybe you can resonate with this. So, um, my older brother's here with me today, uh, so glad that he could join us, um, blessed. He's about four and a half years older than me, and he and I are super close and have been uh, for years now. Of course, we fought as kids and everything, but when I was growing up, um, I thought Dallas hung the moon. Uh, anybody else a younger sibling in here? Okay, maybe some of you can resonate uh, with me on this. I thought everything he did was cool. If he played baseball, I wanted to play baseball. If he hung out with his friends, I wanted to hang out with his friends. Um, If he played the drums, I wanted to play the drums. But Dallas stole all the musical talent in the family. I'm not bitter, okay? Um, But one of Dallas's responsibilities uh, in our family household was to mow the grass. So that was one of his chores. And uh, and one day I remember uh, I was about nine years old, so Dallas was uh, almost 14. And I looked out the window, and he is mowing the grass. And I thought to myself, if Dallas is mowing the grass, I need to be mowing the grass. Like, that's what a man does. He mows the grass. And so I walked out into the backyard, and I stopped him from mowing the grass. And he said, what's up, bro? I said, let me do this. I said, I, I, need, to, I need to do this. Let me mow the grass. I can do it. And Dallas looked at me. He threw his hands up. He said, it's you. You got it. And he, and he turned around. And, and I couldn't see his face, but I have to believe that there was a big grin on his face. We can ask him later. But Dallas walked inside, and, and I'm here to tell you that that was the last time that Dallas ever mowed the grass at our family's house. It became my job from then on. And, and maybe you're thinking, wow, Dusty, you were not the brightest kid ever. Uh, you... There's a strong possibility you might be right. But the thing about it is, Dallas made mowing the grass look shiny. He made it look like something I needed in my life, like something I had to have. Now, again, you may be thinking, Dusty, 
how did mowing the grass look like something you needed in your life? The same way that we let a lot of things look like look shiny, the, way, the same way that we make a lot of things in this world look like we need it. We need another car. We need a bigger house. We need fill in the blank for you. I need these things. I've been there. I, I'm there a lot, actually, where the ways of this world, the things of this world are so shiny. And if I'm not careful, if I'm not in this daily, I'll begin to, to chase that. I'll begin to go, hmm, maybe making a little bit more money is what I do need. Maybe if I could just have enough to go on this vacation, I'll be where I need to be. And I just want to tell you, the shiny things of this world, they lose their luster. They don't satisfy. You can chase them and chase them and chase them. And there's always going to be something else to chase. I want to remind us that what satisfies is Christ. What fills us is Christ. If you're in here and you've been chasing anything and everything the world has to offer, I'm not here to condemn you. But I'm here to tell you there's something better. That Jesus is the better way. And if you've been chasing anything and everything else and you want to talk about what it means to chase after Christ, I would love to chat with you. Any of our pastors will be around afterwards. We'd love to chat with you. Find one of us. Again, I don't want to beat you over the head with this. I just want to plead with you uh, as one of your pastors, as somebody who's growing to love you guys very quickly, is let's be students of the truth. Let's let the truth wash over us daily that we may love our Savior more and more. So I just want to close with a couple of questions uh, that I've really been considering as I prepared for this and, and just hope you will ponder a little bit as well. First, do you see a growing love for Christ or a growing love for this world in your life? I really want you to examine your heart. Is there a growing love for Jesus or a growing love for the world? Second, are you battling daily by meditating on the Word of God? Are you into the truth? I'm not talking about a checkbox thing. I'm not talking about, oh, I had my, my five-minute quiet time. Boom, done. No, no, no. Do you desire to meet with the Father in His Word? And finally, are your worldly desires passing away? Are these desires that well up inside of us, do you see a decrease and do you see a dying off of those as you behold the beauty and the preeminence of our Savior? Let's pray. God, you are good. God, you are holy. You're perfect in power. God, I need you right now. I need you in an hour. I need you this evening. God, we need you. Help me to not believe the lie that I can do anything apart from you. You're where my hope comes from. You're where my strength comes from. God, please help me. Please help us as a church body to not be lured away by what's shiny. To not be lured away by the, the evil things of the world. But God, that our love for you 
and the, the affection of our heart, God, would be after you. Please draw us to you. God, may we be students of your word, not so that we can be theologically sound, but so that we can fall more in love with you. God, thank you for this time in your scriptures. See you now, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.